This is Kristen Hovitt, and you are listening to Humans of Earth, the podcast that seeks to make the world smaller through shared stories of ourselves and what matters to us. Your posts on Facebook are some of my favorite things ever, all the animals, and it's awesome. Hey, that just makes my day. Thank you. Welcome to the 16th episode of Humans of Earth. Today, I'm speaking with Karen Bonder, a 42-year-old biologist, author, and TV host from Chilliwack, British Columbia. You were born in New West, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yes. For everyone not in BC, that's New Westminster, British Columbia. What was it like growing up there? So I actually grew up in Maple Ridge, which isn't super far from New Westminster. And um, at the time when I was growing up in the you know late 70s, early 80s, Maple Ridge was a pretty cool little town. It was mostly a farming town still back then. Oh, wow, I'm really aging myself here. And now where I live in Chilliwack is actually quite similar to how Maple Ridge Ridge was when I was growing up there. I, I think Maple Ridge is actually quite industrialized and, and big now, you know, as the urban sprawl continues to fall out of Vancouver. But I had a great childhood. I loved just kind of being out there, you know, small family, small town, lots of kind of activities, dancing and brownies and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Would you ever move to the city? Great question. <laughs> I have the wonderful privilege of visiting cities a lot. So I go to LA, you know, six or eight times a year usually, and I can get to Vancouver whenever I like. So I think I like to visit the city, <laughs> but I, I'm pretty happy being in a quieter spot for overall living. From reading online, it sounds like you are really heavily involved in the arts as a young person. Where did science come in? This is another kind of one of those great mashups that sort of like arts and science, I feel like they kind of fly into many people's lives at different times. And um, yeah, I grew up as the dancer. My parents just really wanted to channel my energy. <laughs> which I still have quite a lot of it. And I guess my parents saw that and um, they were like, okay, this girl's going to get into a ton of trouble unless we channel this energy into something. So they put me in dancing and I danced every single day of my little girl life and I loved every second of it. I did actually get so far as to try to make a career out of it after high school. I got really involved in classical ballet and I sort of got to some fairly prestigious levels and uh, danced in Germany for a little while six months or so after graduating high school. But, you know, funny enough, I still remember, even though, you know, dance and the arts and performing was such a huge part of my life, I still remember that early in my elementary school days, my favorite thing to do was to go to our little school library and to look up the old National Geographic magazines. I know a lot of people do this. <laughs> and I would always look up the sharks. I was sharks. I was super obsessed with sharks and like the the mega mouth and you know all these crazy looking animals. It was funny for me after I finished my sort of dancing career and started studying. And even though I went to university fairly soon after I stopped dancing, I didn't happen upon biology right away. I I took a lot of dance in university and acting and um, languages and humanities. And I sort of stumbled on biology kind of indirectly. And I only remembered after that, that I had done this sleuthing as a young kid, you know, it sort of goes in and out of your mind 
you know, the, the level of importance you ascribe to different things. And I think it's wonderful that you can kind of forget about these things and then remember them and be like, Oh yeah, when I was little, I used to love that. And yes, that's sort of how it unfolded. I know for me, I grew up in North Dakota. I had a similar thing where I was really into the arts and that was sort of my direction. And then I got into science writing and it was sort of this weird convoluted path. But for me, there was this background of like, well, women don't really do science, you know? So I'm wondering if that was at all part of your experience. That's a really interesting point. I, um, my parents were always very, very supportive of me in kind of anything I wanted to try. Although I guess now that you say that, the directions they pushed me in were all sort of very societally female based, if you will. Um, my gosh. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I think that they would have supported me no matter what, but I think, you know, I just started going in that one direction of the dancing and I just kind of grabbed it and ran with it and didn't look back until I was done. So you're a biologist, an author, and a TV host. What does a typical workday look like for you, if that's such a thing in your life at all? (laughs) (laughs) These are all such wonderful questions. Please started another book, which I wasn't even, it's more of like a memoir, because I think, God, my life is the most ridiculous thing ever sometimes. Because, you know, I can literally be finding and naming a new species in Borneo. And then the next week, I am home picking lice out of children's hair at my kids school and, you know, and just doing piano lessons and dealing with picky eaters at my dinner table. I'm a single mother of four and life gets pretty busy. And like, there's nothing like motherhood to kind of keep you super grounded and just kind of humble because, you know, at the end of the day, your kids really don't give a crap. If you named 18,000 species, they're like, where's my dinner? (laughs) It's a wonderful life, but it's certainly for people who need more structure and predictability, it would probably drive a lot of people insane. I also saw that you're a psychotherapist. How does that fit in with everything else that you have going on? This is a really interesting area of my professional career. In the last couple of years, I guess it was maybe 2016 or the end of 2015, actually, I decided to go into the area of psychotherapy and I had always kind of been peripherally interested in it. And a lot of the shows, you know, for example, the Animal Planet show that I did, it was called World's Oddest Animal Couples. And we went all around the world meeting different people who had really unique relationships with animals. It just opened my eyes to the level of comfort, communication, emotional needs of both animals and humans. And so I kind of got the idea I should maybe learn a little bit more about humans. I'm very animal-based in my education. So I did that. I became a psychotherapist. And um, I myself have received a ton of excellent psychotherapy in my life. I love talking. I think women do, you know, and, you know, in today's society, we often don't feel like we have a voice. And I think that when we have the opportunity to just talk, it's really wonderful. And it's beneficial to us to learn about ourselves. That said, my main clients that I work with now are not women at all. (laughs) I work in a first stage recovery home for drug and alcohol addiction. I'm the main, well, I mean, I'm the therapist in what this house and I designed the program. I basically do all of the therapy there. And it's just such a wonderful compliment to the work that I do in terms of animal cognition and animal learning, because I learn about us as an animal <laughs> and my experience is both very personal because obviously I feel things in my own life and my own relationships and stuff. But it's really interesting to talk to people on the level of functioning of a newly recovering 
addict because we break it right down to levels of functioning that are kind of comparable, more comparable to animal functioning. I mean, an, an addict in active addiction is somebody who is concerned about basic survival. And that sort of takes a lot of the societal constructs out of the equation and makes it simpler. And I am fascinated by that. What form of psychotherapy do you practice? I follow a lot of Adlerian principles. So basically human-centered approaches that basically the real fundamental basal belief in the fact that humans all have their own story to tell if they have an appropriate way to tell it. And you don't know what somebody's way is until you give them the opportunity to show you. And I think in today's world, we just don't get that opportunity anymore. So I follow a lot of Adlerian stuff. And I also think that family systems therapy is a massive important part of who we become as individuals. And so I always think it's really important not to just sort of look at what one individual is doing, but look at them and allow them to understand what their role is in their family construct and how that, you know, made them who they are. What's something about you that most people don't know? <laughs> Two random things. I can tap dance like nobody's business. And I have a tattoo. My first ever tattoo is of a nudibranch chromodomus cunei, and it's on my left butt cheek. <laughs> when I was 18 and I was in Australia and the guy giving me the tattoo said, you know, you're going to have a slug on your bum, love. And I'm like, yes, I know. And I was so happy. <laughs> How many tattoos do you have? Oh, I have many. I have uh, a whole bunch on my right foot ankle and leg. Most of them come from various trips. So I got one in uh, French Polynesia the first time I went. I got another big one when I went there the last time. I got a set of sea turtles in Australia, an indigenous design from Hawaii, and a whole bunch of Ernst Haeckel, who's an early 20th century science illustrator. I got a whole bunch of his diagrams of invertebrate larvae all up my leg. <laughs> and I hear you're doing another expedition soon. What's that about? So I am leaving in just a few weeks, um, heading back to the amazing island of Borneo, which is a province in Malaysia. I am heading there with a group called Taxon Expeditions. I am a naturalist on their faculty. It's the best dream job like ever. Basically, I just get to go and hang out in the jungle and help with collections and whatever they need me to do. I just go and do it and I get to bask in the glory of the tropical jungles while I'm doing it. Tell me some of the little things in life that gave you the most joy. That's a great question. I am overall, I would say I'm a pretty happy person. And the simple things are really important to me. Like, I take a whole lot of internal joy, not that this is little, in being Canadian. I kind of think about it every day, how lucky and happy I am that um, I get to live here. <laughs> because a lot of people, you know, it's that one great video that we saw on Facebook that time where they had everybody come to the starting line and then they gave everybody certain head starts. And then by the end of the head starts, some people had already finished the race and the race hadn't even started yet. Canadians get to start the race ahead of everybody else because we just live in the best country ever. <laughs> I also really love food art, which is funny. I collect a lot of food magnets and I make things that look like food and I like little jewelry things that look like food. There's a lot of people that make mini food on Etsy and it's really fun. My favorite is one, it's a little slice of lemon meringue pie and also I have one that's a little raspberry tart. <laughs> 
tiny little raspberry cream tart. It's just adorable. And you can just, they're just little charms, I guess, that you can put on necklaces and stuff. My daughters and I try to make them, you know, we make our own. And of course, they're also awesome, but they don't look quite as good as those ones you find on Etsy. (laughs) What's your most prized possession and why? Ooh, gosh. My most prized possession. Ooh, such a philosophical question. I'm not going to take it to a deep philosophical level. I'm going to say I really am very, very proud of my house because my house is not just an expression of myself and the way that I live, but it's also art. I had my the outside of my house painted this really bright raspberry fuchsia color. And then I have all over the outside walls of my house, I've done glass mosaic work because I sort of like the idea of having one's house as an art installation that you kind of get to come home to every day. So that my front steps are all totally done in mosaic on the treads. Yeah, I just get out there and put glass on stuff and it looks awesome. I guess I feel like my house, the space that you create to live in is such a wonderful opportunity to, I don't know, feel great in just a simple thing. It's just a little house in Chilliwack, no big deal, but it's just, it's mine and I love it. (laughs) Do you get to spend a lot of time in your house or are you traveling a lot? How does that work? Yeah, it really varies. I actually just calculated yesterday that March, I will unfortunately only be spending like eight nights in my house. March is going to be really busy. I'm in Borneo, then I'm off to a speaking gig in um, the Mayan Riviera, and then I got a TV shoot directly from there to LA. I know that it gets crazy sometimes, but then again, I've been home since like mid-November. So I've had like half November, December, January, and all February with very little traveling, just totally being home, being the mom. And I really try to make a point of when I am here, I do a lot, like I do a lot of stuff at the school. I try to have my kids' friends over for playdates a lot and just kind of full-on mom it because I know that when I'm busy, it kind of falls down quite a bit. Tell me some things about TV hosting. Like, is that something that you plan to do or did you just sort of happen into that? Oh, I definitely really wanted to do it. I always sort of sought opportunities to be able to do it. What I guess I didn't realize and what I think most people still don't realize is how very elusive and difficult (laughs) those kind of hosting positions are to get. It's really tough to work in TV and anybody who works in TV will probably concur that, you know, you're sort of at the mercy of many big network issues and feelings and personalities and then everybody gets fired and then the new people hate what you do and la la la. It just it happens a lot and um, it's disappointing especially when you're a scientist and you're passionate and you're just really wanting to to get out there and and do this cool work. So yeah, that's tough. I've had some great experiences though, that said, that have just sort of changed my life and allowed me to see a whole bunch of stuff. So it's great work when you can get it. (laughs) And uh, otherwise, it's sort of just this enigmatic thing that, that may or may not materialize for anybody at any given point ever. What's something that shocked you or surprised you about hosting? I guess as a lot of us that sort of grow up or spend some time thinking about being that person with that job on BBC or Nat Geo or something like that, and you see people doing it, like you actually see that some people get there. And I guess what was shocking was how difficult it is to actually get something like that. And it really doesn't necessarily mean that a show isn't great or that wouldn't there wouldn't be a good audience for it. It's often 
the future of your work is decided by people that really don't understand anything about what you do. It's just what their requirements are for their ratings and stuff like that. So that's hard. That's a tough one to digest, you know? So I guess for me, that shows also the big advantages of going to the web because there's not this massive set of rules in place and sort of big people in suits making decisions for you. You can kind of just slap some stuff together and throw it up on the web, which is really fun and a different approach and often a more gratifying approach because you can just make stuff happen like right away. And a lot of my online series, like the first Wild Sex was totally bold. We would never have gotten away with doing that on TV and we still probably wouldn't, but we did it online and it's got, you know, 70 million views or something. And, you know, people thought it was cool. I hear that you have a new book coming out in April. And it's called Wild Moms. Can you tell me more about that? Yes, I am very proud of this book. This is basically it's a sort of a follow up to Wild Sex. Wild Sex ended up with, you know, the, ooh, what's the aftermath of the sex? Ooh, it's the offspring. So the bulk of parental care in the animal kingdom falls to mothers, perhaps unsurprisingly, especially in vertebrates with internal fertilization. This book is a fairly comprehensive sweep through the animal kingdom about what mothers do. And it takes you through um, the gestational process or the egg laying process, depending on the species. It takes you through the birthing process. It takes you through early days and early behaviors and early connections. It ends up with menopause and grandmothering. And yeah, it takes you sort of through the whole journey of what motherhood looks like for other animals. And not only that, it also really considers the psychology and the meaning of motherhood for our species, which I think we're still grappling with, uh, especially based on the way societies are, you know, the whole Me Too movement and the whole way that women are gaining such traction and having our voices heard finally. I think there's a lot of basic biology there. And what are your thoughts on the Me Too movement? I am a big fan of the Me Too movement. Obviously, we all have our own personal stories about, you know, men and being marginalized or sexualized or whatever. I don't have a story about being physically abused, thankfully for myself, but I have several friends who have. I think it's an amazing time to be a woman. And I think because of the traction that that movement is gaining, because such major women in the world, and by major, I mean those movie stars that have all of the money and power <laughs> that, you know, we think they have all the money and power. And then all of a sudden they're turning around and saying, look, we got marginalized. And that's a big message. And um, I actually have a fairly substantial project on the horizon, many of the details of which are as yet confidential. But it's a project that I am extremely passionate about, and I will be founding something for women who go into academic science to help them with that journey. That'll hopefully be by the end of the year, but still doing some stuff there. So yeah, the Me Too movement, it's a, it's a very exciting time to be a woman. Would you consider yourself to be a spiritual person? Oh, absolutely. 100%. I am also a recovering addict, which is a pretty important part of my background. And that's why my outlook on being an addictions therapist and sort of the approach to psychology is so near and dear. In adopting a program of recovery and a philosophical way of life, I think you can't do that without having some kind of openness to spirituality. For you, that's probably not religious, but... Correct. Right. Yeah, it's not religious. I feel like for me, the notion of emergent 
properties of systems is a godlike quality. And there's a wonderful book, A God That Could Be Real. And it's a very interesting book about how this unpredictable nature of complicated systems, traffic, for example, or a song made out of notes or a language made out of letters and words, all of these kind of emergent properties that come out of complicated systems. It refers to that as, as God. And I that really resonates with me. That makes a lot of sense. And I like it. I wanted to jump in here and give a definition of emergence. To do that, I'm going to read from Wikipedia. So in philosophy, systems theory, and science, emergence is a phenomenon whereby larger entities arise through interactions among smaller or simpler entities such that the larger entities exhibit properties that the smaller or simpler entities do not exhibit on their own. Emergence plays a central role in theories of complex systems. For instance, the phenomenon of life as studied in biology is an emergent property of chemistry and psychological phenomena emerge from the neurobiological phenomena of living things. Basically, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Okay, back to the show. I guess what it does for me is it just affirms that There are many characteristics of systems that are unpredictable and beautiful. And and since I believe that there's a greater thing than me, the emergent properties of a human system are so much more powerful than any of the constituent humans making it up. I have to be a part of that or I choose to be a part of that in a way that is productive and positive. And that's a choice I wake up and make every day. And that's like what my spirituality is. I guess for me, I I have a background as a fundamentalist Christian, actually coming from North Dakota. That's not surprising. Right. Yeah. But um, now I would consider myself an agnostic atheist, but I don't know what to do with the word spiritual because I do feel like there's this connection that we all have. And I always ask people like, what do you think of that term? And How do you use it? And what exactly are you talking about when you say spiritual, you know? Ah, yes, I totally agree. And I would say that I used to be a real, not an agnostic, but an atheist. I used to be a real hardliner about stuff like that. And I realized that was to my own detriment to take a hard line against something is actually quite detrimental to anybody, I think. I definitely take a pragmatic approach to spirituality, but my Reiki practitioner, I have so much trust and faith and respect in her, and I believe with every fiber of my body and what she does for her energetic healing. So I think that the power of energy is something that humans don't understand yet. We may at some point understand because we know we know that the second law of thermodynamics we know that's true you know we don't create or or destroy matter it just changes form and i think we just don't understand a lot of the properties about energy and what it could look like in a spiritual context of course humans take that in a whole bunch of wacky directions which i don't subscribe to But I would never discount that we don't know about all the shit flying around us all the time. If you could sum it up in a couple sentences, what would you say inspires you the most? (laughs) I wish I knew the answer to that. I get stumbled up asking myself what it is that I am working for because I do work really hard and I am very motivated. And sometimes I really have to check with myself, what what am I 
striving for. I think I strive for the basic things that most humans do, which is a sense of personal contentment. But I do love, I, I mean, everybody has their own thoughts about what Facebook does and doesn't do for them. I get a lot of laughs out of Facebook. I think it's pretty darn funny. A lot of fun, happy things that get shared. For example, this morning, something came across my feed, which was a whole bunch of choirs who were meeting in the state of Kentucky for a choir, I don't know, competition or something. I don't even know. But they were all in their hotel. And it was one of those hotels that had a massive atrium in the middle. And all of the rooms were around the edges. All the choir members were singing the American National Anthem. And... God, it was beautiful. And it just really brightened my day. I, I'm not even American, but I just thought, what a beautiful expression of happiness. Yeah, stuff like that gets me out of bed in the morning because I believe in the goodness in humanity. I really, really do. What current events are you following really closely right now? I do always kind of have one eye on the American political system just based on, oh God, based on the fact that it's entertaining. I'm sorry to say that, but it is entertaining. And it's also, I think for everybody, it's a lesson in humanity and our own capability. I find it an incredible sociological experiment and, and demonstration for us. So, I mean, I definitely keep an eye on that. Who isn't keeping an eye on uh, Spaceman off in his Tesla going around the world right now? That's just an inspiring inspiring aspect of what we're capable of. You know? <laughs> like, wow. And I also keep an eye on a lot of sort of environmental things, obviously, based on my background as a biologist. I always like to kind of keep tabs on what's happening in grassroots organizations and, and smaller areas, smaller organizations in places like Borneo and Malaysia, New Guinea, stuff like that. Would you consider yourself to be an introvert or extrovert? Oh, I think I'm about as extroverted as they come. I love people. Like I just, it's stupid. I think people often, I don't know, maybe even they find it off-putting because I get so excited. I just can't help it. I get so excited and I just have such a good time when I go to places and I just, yeah, I'm super extroverted. <laughs> when it comes to your writing process, I know that you write a lot. I'm an introvert and I write a lot. So I know what that looks like for me. But how does that look like for you in terms of needing to spend a lot of time alone writing? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that because I have four kids and I'm on my own, with them, well, I mean, I am, and then they go to their dads. We share custody. We have a really great co-parenting relationship. But I think that because when I have them, it's like four on one and everything is just like this immense level of chaos and crazy that I really, even as an extrovert, I appreciate so much the stillness and the quietness and the opportunity to think. I do love being alone. Actually, that's sort of getting me kind of philosophical about myself now because I, I do love being alone. I love it. But I also really love other people. Yeah, because I think like the number one sort of defining feature is like an introvert to recharge. They need to be alone. An extrovert needs to be around people to feel alive kind of thing. Oh, yeah, that makes total sense. What's one of your favorite books? Ooh, so I guess nonfiction wise, I really have to go with, oh boy. <laughs> I love that book that I mentioned earlier. 
I kind of like a lot of um, lighter stuff when I'm reading for fun, just because I write a lot of stuff that's fairly philosophically heavy and engaging. And I like just a great storyline like Girl on the Train. Right now I'm reading The Widow or Gone Girl or, you know, I, I like all those sort of chick things. I love the Stig Larson series, stuff like that, you know, just cool storylines with women that are in cool positions. And what about TV shows? Super funny because I do a lot of television in my own career and I don't actually have any of those channels. <laughs> when I can, I love watching some good old awesome natural history stuff that you'll find on Nat Geo or BBC. Love it to bits. Can't get enough of it. Also love a good series like Wentworth. Oh, and I guess, yeah, maybe it's cool, Kristen. I hadn't thought of this before, but most of the series I love have really strong female characters. Wentworth, obviously. Orange is the New Black, fun, not as great as Wentworth, but still really love it. This is Us. Oh my God, what a well-written, intelligent show with really compelling characters. Yeah, I love those kind of things. And what's Wentworth? I'm not familiar with that one. I've seen it on Netflix, but... It's OMG. It's a female prison drama, but it is kind of like Orange is the New Black on steroids. The really hard hitting where Orange is the New Black takes you through that quirky, funny vibe. Uh, Wentworth just goes straight and like hits you right in the stomach. It's very jarring and very real and just tremendous. Have you seen Godless by any chance? Oh, I haven't. No. So I love it because Michelle Dockery is the main, the lead uh, female character, and she meets everyone who comes to her land with a shotgun. She's like, basically, why are you here? Nice. It's awesome. What are the top four countries that you want to visit? My favorite place in the world, even though I've been there more times than one, is French Polynesia. I can't get over it. Like, it's my fave, my soul lives there. But that said, my soul lives in a lot of places. Um, <laughs> I think the tropics are definitely a place where I always feel a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more interested in what's lurking under the stones or between the bushes or anything like that, because obviously tropical environments have a much greater level of biodiversity. I mean, I still obviously love the temperate environments. It's where I live. It's kind of what I do. But the ocean definitely, and a tropical place. So I would say any country that sort of fits that description is a huge yes for me. So in the tropics, you know, they don't really have the change of seasons. And that's something that I adore about living in British Columbia. The seasons, it's just such a, like every year feels like a rebirth. However, we also go into this, you know, mid-November, gray, rainy funk that we get to come out of, you know, until sort of March, April, which can be really depressing. I do really love the fall, the beauty, the coziness, the leaves. I love that. I think I would really miss it if I didn't live in a place with seasons. I'd have to maybe come back and visit in the fall. I also would really love to go to St. Petersburg one day. It was a favorite place of my brother's. He, he died when I was almost 30 or no, I had just turned 30. Um, so he died quite a few years ago now, but he always had wanted to take me to St. Petersburg. It was a very special place for him. He was an art historian. So one day I'd love to go there just to honor that. Yeah. For him. If you could try any other profession, what would it be? Ooh, uh, <laughs> wow. Oh gosh. What would I be? I've often thought I would probably make a good lawyer. <laughs> 
happy I would be about that. But um, I think probably the other profession that I would have probably really excelled at would be uh, an actual biology professor. I mean, I guess I am one in a in an indirect way, but with somebody that has like a well-established research program that just kind of goes and does their work and yeah, is dirty like all the time and just lives, eats and breathes biology. In terms of some of the animals you've seen, what's your favorite one? You can always count on me answering that by saying nudibranchs. They are like an expression of unbelievable beauty, voracious predatory natures, chemical warfare, and hermaphroditism. So they have crazy, wicked sex lives. They've got it all. And describe their sex lives. Oh my God. We have an animal that is a hermaphrodite. So having both male and female genitalia and gametes at the same time, we often will see very drastic and violent strategies for successful sexual reproduction because males and females, a lot of times are at war. Sperm is abundant and really cheap. Eggs are expensive and very rare. And so females are often very protective over their eggs and men are not protective over their sperm and blah, blah. So when you are a hermaphrodite and you have both expensive eggs and very cheap sperm, you want to be the guy as much as possible because it's cheaper for you and you get your genetic blueprints into future generations just the same. So a lot of hermaphrodites have structures, chemicals, behaviors to manipulate their potential partners into taking on more of a female role. It gets really violent and wacky crazy because then they also have evolved structures to mitigate their own defenses against themselves. It's wacky. Like it's crazy. Yeah. I read somewhere that sharks, the mother shark can have in a, I don't know what they call it, like a litter of baby sharks. There can be baby sharks from many male sharks at the same time. Oh, yes. And this is something that's actually quite common in uh, many vertebrates that have litters, if you will. And so with cats, with dogs, many birds, it's capable for more than one male to sire different babies in a litter. But the cool thing about that sand tiger shark example is that the female shark has a paired uterus. So she has two uteruses, basically. And there will be a bunch of eggs in each of those uteruses that will get filled from different males' sperm. And so inside each of her uteruses, you'll see a bunch of embryos. The first one to hatch out of the egg in her uterus called ovoviviparity because they're eggs, but they hatch live inside the female's body. Anyways, those will hatch. And then the biggest, strongest one of those will cannibalize all of its siblings and emerge as the victorious one from her uterus as it gets born. And so there's already been this massive war take place inside her reproductive tract and only the most the strongest and fittest if you will of the babies survives and so in this way she can actually have sex with many males and only the sperm of the strongest ones will be the sperm that creates the viable embryo super interesting that's amazing I'm glad that doesn't happen for us that would be kind of wild actually I suspect on some level that it does well, obviously, we don't have all the parity, but I do actually believe that human females can store sperm. And we know we can for about five days or so. But we've learned things like how orgasm is actually perhaps a function to increase the possibility of a pregnancy. And we know that humans 
tend to get pregnant more often from preferred partners. And I think this is kind of the body's way of exercising cryptic female choice or the female being able to uh, stack deck or the sperm having to act in a really good way in order to be successful. It's not as simple as just boy meets girl, boy sexes girl, boy is daddy. It's not like that at all. <laughs> what I was referring to was the cannibalism of siblings inside. That's insane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be super bad if we did that. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, what's your ancestry? That's a question that I ask a lot of people on the show. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I have a lot of Eastern European from my dad's side, so Russian-Ukrainian. In fact, the name Bondar means bumblebee in Romanian. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm going on an expedition to Montenegro this summer, and I'm really very excited about that. I think I'll look like a lot of the people there. I think, I, yeah, that'll be very interesting for me. Yeah, what else? I have a lot of British from my other side. So that was my dad's side, and there's also quite a good amount of French-Canadian there on my dad's side. My mom's side is mostly British ancestry and Scottish. What's your theme or focus for 2018? I like the theme of emergence. I think that it's fitting to me in my life right now because a lot of the projects that I have cultivated for myself in 2018 are projects that I built from the ground up. I think a lot of the projects that I've worked on up to now has been sort of me giving a decent and meaningful input into someone else's projects, which is also awesome. But I think right now, this time in my life is a time where things are taking off on me for projects I've started, which is very cool. If you had one message for the world, what would it be? What I would want is for people to reflect a little more on their actions and the actions of those around them for the purposes of gaining the greater understanding. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like to talk about? I suppose I should also mention I have two therapy dogs and I always take them with me to work. And I really think that the power of the animal-human connection is something that may inform more of my work in the future. I think it's a really important aspect of human functioning. It sort of allows us to see how we would function as simpler beings. And I think that we really, as a world, need that now. What kind of dogs are they? Oh, they're both just rescues. I think that rescue dogs and animals can actually have the most profound effect on humans. It's sort of a mutual understanding of, I've been broken, you've been broken. Let's help each other through mutual trust. And it's really a unique opportunity. So mine are, one of them is a rescue from Mexico. The other one's actually a chihuahua. She's from a kill shelter in California, I think she had lots of litters and then they just abandoned her. So I have her now and just, you know, giving her her old lady happy place. Are your kids interested in science? Yeah, my eldest is very much like his dad, who's a mathematician, a math professor, actually, and he wants to be an engineer. My girls definitely are expressing an interest in biology, for sure. My boys, it's more about the electronics and stuff right now. So we'll see. <laughs> Well, thanks again. Cheers, Kristen. Thank you so much. This has been a beautiful interview. Have a great day. You too. Bye. To learn more about Karen, check out her website at karenbonder.com. I've included this link and more in this episode's show notes. That concludes our 16th episode of Humans of Earth. Please visit kristenhovitt.com for more information and consider becoming a patron of Humans of Earth through Patreon at patreon.com slash humans of earth. 
A huge thank you to our patrons. This podcast would not exist without you. Thanks for joining me today and be sure to tune in next time.